Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find... Uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. Well, from that phone call back on January 2nd of 2021 to possible charges stemming from Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis's election probe, we'll get the latest on what's been taking place regarding former President Donald Trump and allies, as well as other Georgia-related political news when our politics team stops by. Plus... I submitted an application in 2018. I was told I would be on a waiting list. So from there I was checking often to see if I was getting closer to be being picked up for housing. A closer look feature into the challenges seniors are facing when it comes to affordable housing. And speaking of housing, six years ago, the book, The Color of Law, detailed what we call credible evidence about the history of racism in U.S. housing practices and policies. Its author was Richard Rothstein. Now comes a follow-up, Just Action, by Rothstein and his daughter Leah. So all that's coming up. But first this, the state is now issuing issuing terminations for people who may no longer qualify for Medicaid or children's health insurance. Georgia is in the process of reevaluating almost 3 million members for continued health insurance coverage over the next year, as we hear from Jess Mador. The earliest date Medicaid or Peach Care for Kids members could lose coverage is June 1st, but those notified about potential termination have another 90 days to submit any requested documents and they can appeal. The Department of Community Health is evaluating every Georgian with a plan over the next year. Until now, during the pandemic, the federal government barred states from cutting off Medicaid coverage. The goal was to make sure people had health insurance. The official COVID-19 emergency has ended, and states are now mandated to recertify eligibility for every member around the U.S. Jess Mador, WABE News. And Georgia is now offering a digital option for a driver's license. We're going to talk to him a little bit later. But for now, WABE's Raul Bali reports it is available on certain devices right now. A digital version of a Georgia driver's license or state ID can now be loaded onto the Apple Wallet app for iPhones and Apple Watches. You have to have at least an iPhone 8 or an Apple Watch 4. Steps include taking pictures of both sides of your license along with pictures of your face. Verification can then take up to two days. For now, it can be used at 19 airport TSA checkpoints around the country, including Hartsfield-Jackson. Most importantly, you still need to carry your physical driver's license or state ID with you. Law enforcement will not accept digital IDs and TSA can still ask for your license or ID. 
Raul Valley, WABE News. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp says the state is committed to the shared values it has with Israel. That came as Kemp is spending nearly a week in Israel. He posted a picture on his social media shaking hands with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He was also meeting with Israeli businesses during the trip. It's Kemp's fourth overseas trip as governor and his second in less than six months. In January, he attended the World Economic Forum in Switzerland. Finally, for more than 50 years, the Chick-fil-A at Greenbrier Mall was a mainstay. But over the weekend, well, the last chicken sandwich was served. This past Saturday, the historic restaurant's doors closed for good. Loyal customers and nostalgic fans flooded the restaurant, placing an order one last time. Now, not only was the Greenbrier Mall location the first Chick-fil-A in Atlanta, it was the first in the world, opening in 1967. Chick-fil-A is yet to give a reason for the closure. We have reached out to them, but did not hear as of airtime. You're listening to Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at CF. GreaterAtlanta.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100 mile coast. A landscape unlike any other, Georgia's coast is home to vital communities and people from all walks of life fighting to protect it. Help keep Georgia's coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. And Closer Look continues here on WABE out of Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. I know you all remember this. Well, it's been in the news. How could you forget? January 2nd, 2021, then-President Donald Trump made a phone call. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. Been at the top of the charts ever since. From that phone call to possible charges stemming from Fulton County District Fonnie Willis's election probe, there's been so much taking place as well as other Georgia-related political news. It's hard to keep up, which is why our politics team is on the WABE payroll. Let's welcome in Raul Bali and Sam Greenglass. Glad to have you on the payroll, fellas. <laughs> hey, Rose. Me too. <laughs> Glad to be paid. <laughs> Sam, let's start with you. I imagine by now you can recite parts of that Trump call to the Secretary of State's office. I'm no comment. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> let's give the audience the Cliff Notes version of what, as they say, what had happened. So this investigation has been going on for about two years now. And like you mentioned, a big part of it stems from this phone call that happened in the weeks after the 2020 election mm -hmm. from then President Trump to Georgia's Republican Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. And as you heard in the top of there, uh, of the segment, he makes a request or an ask of, of Secretary of State Raffensperger for that exact number of votes that he would have needed to win the state of Georgia over Biden. Okay. And then from that, there was some speculation of whether or not there would be some type of investigation. Fulton County Attorney Bonnie Willis. But before that, there had to be a special grand jury. Bring our listeners up to speed on that. So, 
Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis began to investigate this call and a series of other events that happened around this time, you know, including uh, a plan to elevate uh, a group of alternative electors for Trump, despite the fact that Biden had won the state. And so at a certain point, Willis decides that this investigation is going to be very broad-reaching and unwieldy, and so she asks a court to allow the appointment of a special grand jury that would have basically these special investigatory powers to be able to spend a really long time focused on this one case, subpoenaing witnesses, calling them to testify, and then at the end of this whole process, putting together a report that would include a set of recommendations that then the district attorney could either take or leave as she decides whether to make any criminal charging decisions in this case. Okay. And so now we're hearing that there could be some charges maybe coming into August. What's all this about? So, you know, for the last couple of months, we've been following every little tiny tea leaf about some timing on this. You may remember back in the winter when the special grand jury wrapped up its work, uh, District Attorney Willis told a judge that her decision on charges would be imminent. Well, you know, several months have passed now as we've all been scared to leave town for fear that some of this might come down while we're on our vacations. But we've gotten a few more clues in recent weeks, the first being a letter to law enforcement a couple of weeks ago, telling them to ramp up security precautions around the Fulton County Courthouse, basically, during the next grand jury term. Remember, it's a grand jury that would actually bring any indictments, Mm -hmm. criminal charges. Uh, And that term begins at the beginning of July and lasts until uh, September 1st. So that was our kind of first clue Mm -hmm. about timing. And then, as I'm sure you're about to get to, we got another set of clues on, on Friday in another one of these letters. So now we're hearing that Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is directing much of her office staff to work remotely when these grand juries go into session in August. That's a telling (laughs) clue right there. Yeah, so she's listed 10 days, and these are days that we know the two grand juries will be meeting. And uh, she's told, uh, she's notified basically uh, the uh, head Fulton County judge, as well as a slew of other Fulton County officials from law enforcement to the county commissioners to the tax commissioner, uh, basically letting them know that like, hey, there's going to be a scene at the courthouse uh, during these days. And, uh, you know, she closes the letter saying thank you for consideration and assistance in keeping the Fulton County Judicial Complex safe during this time. Doesn't say for what necessarily, but we do know that it's a safety message uh, embedded in this letter. Uh, Well, if the office's core staff will still be working in person, but the DA also made a request about trials and hearings during that time, what is this all about, Sam? I mean, I think what it tells you is that uh, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis does not want law enforcement or other Fulton County officials to be caught off guard by a major uh, national event uh, unfolding at the courthouse, and she's trying to give them some early warning to be prepared. Uh, You know, a couple of weeks ago, I spoke with District Attorney Willis at an event on a totally different topic, uh, and, you know, she told me no matter what decision she makes in this investigation that we're talking about, emotions are going to be high, people are going to want to do things that might be harmful, and she always tells her staff, if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. So I think that's what we're seeing going on here. Now, again, this latest letter, she hasn't explicitly said why uh, they're asking for these security 
precautions, but taking into account all of the clues that we've gotten over these last couple of weeks, I think we're starting to get a sense of what might be unfolding at the end of this summer. So in other words, even if she hasn't confirmed this plan is specifically in anticipation of charges in this investigation, uh, she's saying just in case. (laughs) <laughs> I, I mean, I think it would be really hard to imagine what yeah. else it could possibly be that would require basically, you know, closing off a lot of activity at the courthouse for more than a month. Well, since we last spoke, do we have a better idea then of who could be facing charges in this case? Well, you know, over the course of this investigation that, you know, they heard from 75 witnesses. We've been following a bunch of storylines related to it from the fake electors to the folks in the Trump campaign orbit who helped potentially organize some of this, Uh, you know, Trump campaign lawyer uh, or sorry, Trump personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows. All these people have come to testify. Mm -hmm. What we do notice is that some people were told that they were potential targets of the criminal investigation um, that included Giuliani and also some of these alternate electors. We've learned in the last couple of weeks that a handful of them have accepted immunity deals. This came out through various court filings. Mm -hmm. So we know that um, they probably exchanged something uh, with the district attorney's office uh, likely testimony in in return, uh, not facing prosecution. So we know that a lot of those guys are are off the table. Mm-hmm. Um, but the you know the big question that we don't know is whether the former president uh, is someone who mm-hmm. would potentially face criminal charges here. Now I will say I asked uh, D.A. Willis uh, a couple of weeks ago whether she had watched the indictment unfold in New York against the former president on a totally unrelated case, and she said that she had. Uh, so I, I think that is one clue. Um, But again, we really don't know and might not know uh, until we get to this period uh, at the beginning of August. Are you taking vacation in August, Sam? (laughs) I was. uh, (laughs) And uh, I've been having some long discussions with my family about how we're going to be able to rework that because uh, based on all of these clues that we've been getting, uh, it seems like a time that uh, political reporters are going to want to be uh, very close to the Fulton County Courthouse for maybe many, many days. In other words, I'll see you on the belt line. Uh, <laughs> WAB politics reporter Sam Greenglass, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I know you got a lot to get to today, so we appreciate you. Let's welcome in the other half of our politics duo, Raul Bali. What's up, Rose? Um, are you taking vacation? Um, around July 4th, before before possible indictments, yes. All right, well, just checking. Now, Raul, since we last spoke, Georgia finally opened its first medical cannabis dispensaries because this has been a big deal. Yeah. So let's start. I want to get with a recap of what held up these licenses until this point. I'm going to do the short version. 2015, mm-hmm. uh, medical cannabis was legalized in the state of Georgia. I the possession well. of it. Mm-hmm. But there was no way to legally buy it. That didn't happen until 2019. Then mm-hmm. became a process. But since 2019, it it took a while to get what was the cannabis commission up and running to get the bidding process out. Then there were lawsuits. Come down to it, there were six licenses that were issued. Four of them are tied up in court, but two of them went through. And now you're starting to see some of those first dispensaries that are being opened. And did they expand? They also expanded the list in terms of that medical list of the conditions that would be eligible. Folks with certain conditions would be eligible, correct? There have been a handful that have been added. Again, this past year, they were going to try to add ulcerative colitis, Mm -hmm. for example, but they did not get added. Uh, One of the interesting conversations that I'm hearing is 
now that this product is on the market and people can access it, some of the other uh, conditions that would want access to it, that, that's going to be like the big push we may see at the Capitol next year of, mm-hmm. hey, what about this condition? What about that condition? For example, ulcerative colitis, which which has been pushed. Is there arthritis on that list? I can, I can go look it up real quick while we're talking, uh-huh. but... Um, Generally, asking for a friend who just sent me a text. Um, generally, those, generally those, there's got to be some level of pain with that arthritis, sure. if I remember. And right. it really does. And, and from what research and, and the experts who testified back then said, this really, it's proven that it works for so many, and especially for some kids too. Absolutely, and that's in that autism uh, uh, area with severe autism mm-hmm. and some of the other. Um, some of the other uh, conditions in that area. I want to uh, stay with the legislature in a sense for a moment because uh, the Georgia State Senate Committee is looking at making changes to the certificate of need for folks who are familiar. What does all this mandate cover? I want to talk about this. So if Rose Scott wants to open a hospital or a nursing home or a surgery center, like a a surgery center that Mm -hmm. only handles uh, knees, you have to go to the state of Georgia, specifically the Department of Community Health, and get what is called a certificate of need, mm-hmm. that there's a demand for this service um, that, and that can serve this area, and it wouldn't take away possibly from other institutions that mm-hmm. are nearby. And what this comes down to is you have folks, mainly, uh, for example, you have conservatives and Republicans who say, hey, look, we need to just get rid of this. And, and if Rose wants to open a surgery center X, Y, and Z, she should. The concern from what you hear from the hospitals is, well, if you do this, yeah. you're going to go skim off all the good patients and leave us with either uncompensated care or care that's on, that doesn't get great reimbursements. And hospitals, which are already dealing with major challenges mm-hmm. of reimbursements, are going to be even in a worse condition. Mm. So on the one side, you have hospitals saying no. On the other side, you've got um, you have Republicans. You also have health plans. Are saying it's time to get rid of. They call it an outdated law. With the Senate committee looking into it, that's probably a good indication that this is going to come up next legislative session. Well, it, we saw they, we saw it in the last session yeah. because Burt Jones is one of the leading proponents to get rid of this. Mm-hmm. He's saying these surgery centers should be able to open, or smaller hospitals should be able to open mm-hmm. without without these regulations and he held up legislation mm-hmm. you know for example some advocates say that the mental health uh, follow-up package mm-hmm. was held up because of yeah. certificate of need so you've got a lieutenant governor who is the president of the Senate who says this is a priority for me uh, you you can see that happening in the next session interesting now state lawmakers are also considering changes to tax credits what do you know so far about this there's so much discussion, and, and and the big one always is the film tax credit. Mm-hmm. You know, is it being abused? Is it bringing as many jobs? It, what is the return on investment uh, on these things? You know, um, uh, actually, just this past weekend saw Guardian of the Galaxy uh, with my kids. I'd actually never seen one of those movies before. At the very end, there's the big Georgia Peach yeah. on there. What is Georgia getting in return for whether it's the movies done here, post-production done here, is Georgia getting a good rate a return on money, not only on that credit, but other credits? Mm-hmm. And so that's the discussion. You know, are Georgia's dollars being spent well? You're going to you're going to have p- people on both sides who are like, look, this is worth every penny what it brings the state of Georgia. And others are like, this is not you've got 
and this goes across party lines as well. Interesting. I want to switch for a moment and get to MARTA because ooh, this has been a lot in the news. MARTA officials have just shared their proposed budget for the agency's coming fiscal year. What are the main takeaways here? So main takeaways, first of all, always the first question people ask me, is there a fair increase? Right. No, there's no fair increase. Too fitty, as they always say. Too fitty. <laughs> See, and I sent you that. Uh, one of, I'm, a, I'm a budget geek, so I'm yeah. flipping through the pages uh, of the budget. And, my, and I landed on the page with with Marta's fair history, and I'd forgotten it was $1.25 when I came to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, um, so no fair increase. And there were tokens. And tokens. <laughs> and that was the other thing. I forgot tokens. I totally... So for those who don't know, the tokens went away in 2010. Yeah. I didn't realize it was that recent, but... Um, the big thing you, they, that Marta wants people to know is they want to get back to pre-pandemic service levels. Getting the buses back to pre-pandemic levels by the summer and by trains by the end of the year. And I asked them, what does that actually mean? And that means every 10 minutes in the morning and afternoon for trains and every 20 minutes at night. That's what that hmm. means. Um, you know, That's what it means, but... <laughs> That that's what they're saying. They want yeah. to do by the end of the year with this budget. They want to do some rehabs of some stations, uh, really making a push and getting the the bus rapid transit lines going. And you know what? In in the hearing that I went to, of course, you heard about cleanliness. Yeah. You heard about police coverage. There is more money for those things. But I want to mention something else that 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 if you are a Marta bus rider, you something you need to know. There are going to be real hard discussions about bus service in this town. Frequency versus coverage if you're sending a bus somewhere where no one's riding it or a handful of people riding it should that service continue that's going that's not in the conversation those conversations are just now starting but those are going to be some big conversations coming up well and this also comes at at a time where this transit agencies look it's facing an audit ordered by the atlanta city council for what we're hearing this could take six months A lot of politics tied up into that, you know, because, uh, you know, because of how Marta gets its money, including the half penny that's city of Atlanta only. That's a lot of where that discussion is coming around of what to do with that that half penny, which is a good good chunk of money. And before I let you go, it's never too late to really talk about the 2024 presidential race, because why not? We just heard on NPR about South Carolina Senator Tim Scott just launched his bid today. Officially, we know about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Vice President Kamala Harris has been here. Um, we don't know what Governor Brian Kemp's going to do. What are you hearing about all this? It, first of all, let's start um, with the Democratic side because I just did see the Vice President uh, in person. She came came to Buckhead. The vast majority of her speech was saying what what they had what the Biden administration had done in the past year plus. Mm-hmm. Not really looking ahead. A real focus on what they had already done. When it comes down to any Republican candidate, their argument's going to be, I can beat Joe Biden, or I'm a better candidate to beat Joe Biden than former President Donald Trump. Hmm. What do you know about uh, Brian Kemp? I mean, his name is being... So I heard an interview with Cody Hall on another news mm-hmm. organization. And, and what it comes down to is, at this very moment, you've got to have structure already in Iowa and New Hampshire. And... You don't see that structure set up yet. Now, we suddenly see him go to the Iowa State Fair. I think then we'll start looking. But at this yeah, very why mo- else would he go to the Iowa State Fair? I'm mean, Nothing against Iowa State Fair. I'm just saying. <laughs> don't send me an email. It's not a minute, folks. So see what you did, Raul. I love Iowa. I always get you in trouble. You know this. We say this at the I end. I love of- y'all, Iowa. Y'all my people. <laughs> Goodness. 
But um, I mean, he, you don't see that structure set up. You know, now yeah. if you start seeing those visits and 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 you start seeing the structure set up at this very moment, you know, you feel like that DeSantis and 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 former President Trump are are the ones taking up all the oxygen in the room as Republicans. It's you know, and if Mike Pence jumps in, yeah, you know, you, you, it's it's going to be a challenge. All right. As always, we appreciate you and Sam. WABE politics reporter Raul Bali, thank you so much for taking your time as always. Say hello to the boys. I will. They're great kids. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Now, recently there was a bit of good news regarding the increasing spike in rents that it's actually going the other way. Now, those rental prices were turning back on the decline in Metro Atlanta. In fact, according to a new report, on average, rents are getting a little lower through the nation, throughout the nation. Although, if you ask me, I know you didn't, but 2055 on average is still extremely high for rent. Now, older renters are among those who need a monthly rent that flows within a fixed income for many of them. That's due to several factors that come along with aging. That's according to the latest research. In fact, the medium annual income is about 25000 for people who are 80 and older. And nearly one in four seniors have an income of 15000 or less. That's according to the Bipartisan Policy Center. Closer Look producer LaShawn Hudson spent time with a local senior about the unexpected circumstances that forced her on a housing waiting list for a few years. And as you'll also hear, there's very little housing agencies can do to help expedite the wait. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for letting me into your place, Ms. Burgess. Oh, you're quite welcome. Thank you. All right. Uh, well... I guess we might as well go here into my bedroom. Okay. Marsha Burgesses loves her one-bedroom apartment at Star and Senior Residencies in Clarkston, Georgia. But her most prized possession is a tan queen-size quilt that reads Grandma's Heart. This blanket was given to me by my daughter. And it has all my grandchildren's pictures on it. And everyone that comes here and sees that, they don't look at the decor and nothing else, <laughs> but they are so, just this blanket just sends, just says, oh, this is so beautiful. Where did you get this? How did you have this made or whatever? And as you see, the cotton blanket says, showcases different generations of her family. Looking back over the years, Burgess, who is now 74, says it was a deep love for family and the pursuit of the American dream that led her and her husband and their two children to relocate to the Peach State. We made a move so my children could have more advantages of, uh, you know, going to school and pursuing with their future. Over time, the Burgesses built a solid life together. She says her husband bought the family a six-bedroom home and the couple raised two generations of children their children, and their grandchildren inside that house. But about seven years ago, things changed, and she found herself at a crossroads. And uh, what happened is because of some personal personal um, marital problems, I ended up having to move from the home that I was living in. When I realized that... Uh, 
I had to move from a house to an apartment. I had uh, I had a lot of concerns because I didn't uh, know how I would be able to adjust in a smaller place. I didn't even know where to start to look for apartment for myself. The newly separated mother tried to hang on to the aging family house, but she says it was crumbling and needed a mountain of repairs, including a new roof. Just the thought of downsizing and finding a new place was overwhelming. So what I did, I went to the uh, housing authority of DeKalb County. I submitted an application in 2018. I was told I would be on a waiting list. So from there, I was checking often to see if I was getting closer to be being picked up for housing. Seemed like it was going on and on and on and on, and I didn't hear anything. Patience finally paid off. She was eventually able to move into Star and Senior Residencies. It was an answered prayer. So finally, I was contacted in 2020 about the elderly PBV waiting list for the online pre-application for one day here at Starnes Senior Living. I applied for that and I qualified. The state-of-the-art senior living facility that opened in 2021, owned by the Housing Authority of DeKalb County, is a four-story mid-rise building. Sybil Pinson oversees the Housing Choice Voucher Program at the Housing Authority of DeKalb County. With there being limited senior properties as well as unit availability, um, the availability part comes with, you know, seniors are just more stable um, and they don't move as frequent. So we often, you know, have very few vacancies and opportunities for seniors to come um, off of the waiting list into um, the properties. Pinson says Burgess' experience is not unique and it's not unusual for seniors to wait several years for housing because of a lack of availability. Pinson says her agency often scrubs waiting lists for the most updated information so that applicants can move up. People are on wait lists for years, you know, so we don't want anyone to miss an opportunity to be housed with um, the either project-based or housing choice voucher due to not having the housing authority, not having the most recent contact information. Right now on the project-based wait list, we are probably approximately around 20,000 applicants and that consists of all the properties. Um, and that's pretty um, consistent with our uh, housing choice voucher wait list, which is right there a little over 20,000 as well. Atlanta Housing President and CEO Eugene Jones Jr. says it's a similar waiting list crisis happening in Atlanta. There's people who are suffering staying on the list because they can't find adequate housing. Or if they if, if they can't get housing through the housing authority, you have Fulton County, you have the state that has housing, uh, subsidized housing. So and HUD has subsidized housing throughout, you know, municipalities, county-wise. And so they have a, a lot of opportunity, but you have to live in a place in which you're trying to find a voucher or public housing. And so it's always a daunting task. Joan says there's also an issue of location. Seniors wanting to live in affordable and familiar places. 
They have better schools, better neighborhoods, less crime and amenities. They can get to the store. They can go to buy groceries, the post office. They have a good library. So it's it's just like anyone else trying to find housing. Seniors have a hard way to go because they're sometimes immobile. They don't know where to look. There's not enough adequate help to take them around. And then they're trying to make a decision. Burgess' struggle to find housing is not only a micro problem, it's a macro problem that's happening across the country. Many seniors face housing obstacles that often lead them to being on stalled public housing waiting lists. Atlanta Housing provides subsidies that pay 70% for a senior's rent. But before that, there's this, as CEO Jones explains. Well, we have probably around 20, I say between, let me say between 10 and 15,000. Roughly. Now, now all those are still qualified. So if we were going to open up the waiting list, we have to go through the list. So many numbers and make sure that they still qualify, income qualified, family qualified. And then we go through that list. Um, right now, the supply is not there. We only have so much public housing and we only have so much housing choice vouchers that we can administer and that we can put out there on the streets. And so once it's capped, that's all we can do. Jones says not all 20,000 people on the waiting list are seniors. The population of Georgians 65 and older is expected to increase from just over 1 million to nearly 3 million by 2040, which will widen Georgia's senior housing crisis. As for solutions to the crisis, in 2019, a Georgia House Study Committee on Senior Living released nine recommendations. One called for the federal government to address Georgia's homeless aging population and another called to increase tax credits for older adults. At the federal level, U.S. Senator John Ossoff is pushing for more local, state, and federal government policies to expand the housing supply for Georgia's seniors. Frequently hear from constituents that when seniors can find affordable housing, that the difficulties the operators of, in particular, senior-oriented and assisted living facilities face in sustaining their business models can pose dire challenges uh, for seniors seeking housing. A crisis, a stall waiting list, and an answered prayer. Marsha Burgess has experienced all three. She says she's forever grateful to have safe, secure, and affordable housing. But through the grace of God, I made it through. And Starnes, being here at Starnes, has just been a wonderful place for me to live. I, I love everything about it. It took Marsha Burgess three years to find what she calls her safe haven. But many seniors, they are still waiting. For a closer look, I'm LaShawn Hudson. And this is Closer Look from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. As you just heard, a housing segment there by producer LaShawn Hudson. You know, we've heard from so many different guests since this program began back in 2015 regarding various issues related to housing, from home ownership to renting to public housing. There have been elected officials, housing affordability advocates, academics, civic and social leaders, faith leaders, people of various ages, ethnicities, income levels. And they've all have said, look, this is what's abundantly clear. People used to be able to come to Atlanta and spend, you know, less than 30 percent of their income on housing. 
That's changed even prior to the rise in rates. Just the increase in home prices overall has made Atlanta unaffordable. And so today, the median income household is spending about 41% of their income just to afford a house. Healthcare is a really important part of it, but the science shows it's actually a relatively small part of it. And it's the opportunity to live in a safe community and to quality, affordable housing, have access to good jobs and good life opportunities. That's really what makes people healthy. Landlords, many of whom who took big hits during the pandemic because of the moratorium, have made a very concerted decision across the board. In my humble opinion, it boils down to this. We don't want to serve low to moderate income families anymore. The market is demanding much higher rents and we're going to get them. It's not too late, but with every decision, big decision, every big project, every Beltline, every Westside Park, every major development decision, it is becoming harder and harder. Atlanta, like so many other U.S. cities, well, they're trying to address its housing affordability crisis. However, there are other factors at play here. And it's been a number of systemic issues for more than a century. Discriminatory policies, policies and practices related to housing in the United States. And the history of racial residential segregation through explicit federal measures. Well, this was thoroughly detailed in the 2017 book, The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. Residential segregation, as author Richard Rothstein chronicles, wasn't something that occurred by accident. Now, here he is speaking in Cleveland, Ohio, back in 2017. If, in fact, residential segregation was created unconstitutionally by racially explicit federal, state, and local policy designed to create racial boundaries in every metropolitan area of this country and prevent uh, African-Americans and whites from living with one another, then we're obligated to undo it. It's a constitutional violation. Now there's a follow-up to The Color of Law. It's titled, Just Action, How to Challenge Segregation Enacted Under the Color of Law. This time, Richard Rothstein has a co-author, his daughter Leah, who also has decades of experience as a consultant working with affordable housing developers as well as local governments. By the way, both will be in Atlanta next month for an event taking place at All Saints Episcopal Church. But way before then, they're joining me now. Welcome to you both. Thank you. And I want to be very clear on this because, Richard, often when I get a, a, an email or a text from someone that says Rothstein has moved the needle on this discussion, that is from former mayor of Atlanta, Shirley Franklin. What do you make of that? Well, many people uh, reacted that way to the color of law. Uh, we previously had a national myth that we all shared, mm-hmm. blacks and whites shared it that we had something called de facto segregation, mm-hmm. something that just sort of happened by accident. And what the color of law demonstrated was that the residential segregation we have in every metropolitan area of this country was created by racially explicit government policy at the federal, state, and local level. It was a constitutional violation. Mm-hmm. And everywhere I spoke about it, not only in Cleveland, but in Atlanta and everywhere else, People said, what can we do about it? So I recruited uh, my daughter, Leah Rothstein, who knows something, as you said, about uh, housing policy, much more than I do, to co-author a new book Mm -hmm. called Just Action, which describes what people can do in their own local communities to redress the segregation that was unconstitutionally created. 
And Lee, I want to start now with you. Take our listeners back to this initial conversation you two had about working up, working on a follow-up to The Color of Law. Yeah, well, I was one of the many, many people who read The Color of Law and went to one of my dad's lectures. And like he said, I listened and I was appalled by the history we've forgotten, you know, about how our country has become segregated. I was overwhelmed by the just enormity of the issue and how segregated we are as a country and how intractable it seems that, you know, the de facto segregation myth also doesn't give us much agency to do anything Mm -hmm. to challenge it. So I listened to his lecture and I came up to him afterwards and said, this was fascinating. What do we do now? And his answer was, help me write a book to answer that question. All right. Well, let's let's talk about that, because with your background, your expertise in housing policy, I know that much of that was used in determining the extensive research that still needed to happen. How when you are laying out this book and look, dad wrote the first one. So how much leeway did he say, OK, I'm gonna let you take the lead on this. Or did he come in and try to edit stuff? You know, how dads are. But uh, <laughs> with your expertise in this, how much was that in laying out the foundation for this book? Yeah, definitely. I used my uh, background in public policy and affordable housing development, you know, with my dad's experience as a historian and a journalist, and he could interview people around the country working on these issues. And we coupled that with my understanding of what it's like inside the government working on these issues or inside an affordable housing developers organization and how to sort of uh, blend all of those perspectives to get to some solutions. And so you are, you write, what we require are actions as powerful to diminish segregation as those that created it. It requires policies and programs of several kinds. But you're also, this is a charge also to, for more community-led or grassroots effort. This is what this blueprint is about. And either one of you can, can take it from there. Yes, we um, are convinced that there is no national will to address the inequality that racial segregation has created on a federal level. But as we began to think about this and discovered all the many, many ways in which local policy reinforces and sustains segregation, we realized that there are many ways in which local activists, concerned citizens, can redress segregation. You know, 20 million Americans participated in Black Lives Matter demonstrations Mm -hmm. in 2020. They were whites and blacks and Hispanics and others. They were suburbanites and urban people. It was a broad swath of the American population that participated in these demonstrations. And then most of them went home and put Black Lives Matter signs in their windows and did nothing further to take the most significant action that could make Black Lives Matter. And that is address the residential segregation that underlies not only police violence, but inequality of all kinds in this country today. There's so many small policies that we can pursue. They can be different in every community, but they'll add up to significant change if we mobilize to do it. I hold your part of that because I want to I want to talk about that because if you say Richard that you don't believe there's a national will at the federal level, then Lee often as you both know too when it comes down to the local level it will require some type of of policy and if you and listen if you're in Atlanta you're talking about 
single-family housing or multi-family housing, depending on what neighborhood you go to, my goodness, you're going to get a, a different reaction. So wouldn't it still take some type of, someone may argue, well, it's going to take some, could it take some federal policy to help, you know, guide that? Because locally you're going to still come up with the same the same issues, those that have, that may not care about those that don't or whatever. Federal policy could help, and I think we'll need it eventually. But there's a lot that can be done on the local level that doesn't need to wait for federal policy change. Zoning changes, for example, completely up to federal, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, local government to change the zoning in a community. Uh, Section 8, the Section 8 program, it's administered federally, but there's a lot of the aspects of the program that are decided by local public housing agencies. So those are a couple of examples of changes that could be made on the local level that don't need to wait for federal policy change to happen. Okay, you mentioned Section 8, and often there, there there's a big issue about vouchers. You know, landlords, they don't have to take those. Some say, well, this is part of the problem. How do you navigate through something like that, a, a local policy like that. What is your advice or that you're giving to folks in this book to tackle something like that? There's a lot of aspects of the Section 8 program that can be addressed locally that can make it a better tool to allow uh, low-income families to move out of high-poverty neighborhoods. And some of those changes have to do with the voucher amount itself, mm-hmm. which is uh, set or has the local public housing authorities have control over setting that voucher amount that can make it be worth more in higher cost areas of a region than in lower cost areas so that voucher holding families can afford to move to higher cost um, neighborhoods. Uh, the local public housing authority could also modify its administrative procedures to make it easier for landlords to um, to work with the program. It could also, you know, local groups can work with landlords in their neighborhoods to dispel some of the myths about renting to Section 8 voucher tenants and to, you know, we've talked to several landlords around the country who prefer Section 8 tenants as their tenants because they're more stable and they take Mm -hmm. better care of their properties. So organizing landlords to uh, be more willing and uh, more excited about renting to Section 8 tenants is another thing that can happen locally. In the section where you all talking about investing in segregated black neighborhoods, and I know it's not lost on either of you that the other object to that is that in some of the in a lot of black neighborhoods now and, and Atlanta is one and I'll get some emails. But let's be really clear because I've been here for a while too. you. These neighborhoods are up against developers coming in and real estate investors buying up properties. And then the, the, the identity of the neighborhood changes. Or has been changing. And Atlanta has a lot of them. Well, let me say again, though, that the theme of this book is not just to put out good policy ideas Mm -hmm. that local government can follow. The idea of this book is to mobilize some of those 20 million people, Mm -hmm. both black and white, suburban and urban, to press for policy change. So in the book, and Leah will describe those in a second, in, in the book Just Action, we describe many policies that can be followed in existing low-income black neighborhoods to prevent the displacement of existing residents. But we're not suggesting that simply by talking about those policies, local government is going to enact them. It needs organization. It needs a new civil rights movement to demand these policies. And Leah, your father makes a point in the book that it will take your generation to do this. So let's talk about mobilizing. And and again, there's, there's no simple solution, but if this is a plan of action and you're giving folks these groups here, three bullet points, what are they? What's that first one? 
Well, the first one is to start to talk to your neighbors and start to form groups that are biracial and educate yourselves about your community, how it came to be segregated. I think it's a very important aspect of building this movement is understanding the real history of how we came to be segregated because once we see how intentionally it was, how intentionally created, you know, intentional policies created the segregation of our community. So it will take intentional action to challenge and undo it. And that gives us some agency once mm -hmm. we understand that we have a responsibility to address these intentional policies that were unconstitutional and created this apartheid society that we live in. Um, we can understand that, you know, we it's time for us to live up to this responsibility and we can join with our neighbors to start to examine how to do that in our own communities. So I would say first is to start to uh, organize together and build social relationships, build networks across the city with people of different races to start to take on this issue and start to learn about the issues. And then, you know, then to accept this idea that we put out in just action that there's a lot that can be done locally. You know, it's easy to be overwhelmed by mm -hmm. the enormity of the issue. And um, there's a lot that we can do piece by piece to start to, to challenge and undo the segregation of our communities. If the color of law, which proves how government at all levels created segregation, and then just action is, is this describes where to begin to undo it, then what is the measure for these communities' efforts, to, if enacted, that they're effective? I mean, how long is it another five years we see this, 10 years, sort of what's that metric that you use to determine how effective this has been? This new movement, as Richard called it, it is a civil rights movement here. Well, I'll give you some examples. And the, you mentioned before the developers coming into low-income neighborhoods and resulting in displacement. There are many policies that could minimize the displacement, not eliminate it entirely. No po policy is perfect. Uh, inclusionary zoning is one. Mm -hmm. uh, protection for renters uh, who are evicted is another. Developing land trusts uh, to uh, create affordable housing mm -hmm. in these neighborhoods is another. Uh, we can go into detail about all of these. Each one of them is going to take a mobilized coalition of black and white activists who say they support Black Lives Matter and who want to do something about it. They mm -hmm. won't happen on their own. Mm -hmm. And land trusts have been very, they've been beneficial here in the Atlanta area. We've seen so many in trying to, even if it's just a few units in terms of trying to make sure there's some type of additional housing stock for folks. Leah, I, I want to, as we begin to wrap up, you know, you, your father comes to you and says, look, this is the next phase in this. And you've used your expertise. So in in working with your father on this book, this is more of a personal question. What was that like? It was great. It was, I, I have to admit, I was hesitant to agree to work with him on it. You know, a father-daughter collaboration is iffy in success and <laughs> have difficulties and, and landmines in there. But I was inspired by what he was proposing and the idea that we, you know, there was this platform that the color of law had mm -hmm. people interested in this issue, looking for ideas of what to do. And nothing I've done in my career so far can it had the impact that this uh, has the potential to have, you know, a book can reach so many people. Mm -hmm. And I think just providing some hope in the face of a problem that feels so overwhelming 
um, felt really exciting to me. And it was um, easeful and a wonderful experience. And um, I wish I didn't hesitate as long and started yeah. working with him on it earlier, but it's been great. Richard, I'll give you the last word. Um, she was hesitant at first because it could have been iffy and some landmines in there. <laughs> well, I don't need the last word. Uh, I think we're both very proud of this book, Just Action. It has so many ideas of things that local activists can do mm -hmm. to redress segregation. It really doesn't matter which one you start with. Uh, different communities may choose to start with different ones, but there are so many things that can be done if only people get up from their chairs, meet with their neighbors, and start to mobilize a movement to demand the implementation of some of these policies that, if done, mm -hmm. uh, can make small differences in the redress of segregation. And in combination, all of these can make a significant difference. And that's our hope for the book, Just Action. They will give people ideas without telling them where to start. We can't tell them how to do it exactly. Mm -hmm. But it will give them many, many ideas of how to begin and how to succeed in this effort. Just Action, How to Challenge Segregation Enacted Under the Color of Law by Richard and Leah Rothstein. They're coming to Atlanta next month, June 13th, for a book discussion taking place at All Saints Episcopal Church. Richard and Leah, thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson and Daniel Razel. Our supervising producer is Tiffany Griffith. Our engineer is Sawyer Vanderworth. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look, as well as Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. and in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Fresh Air is next. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen at wabe.org or wherever you find your podcasts. Hey y'all, I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at wabe.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. WABE.